Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Corbu Status. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Minnesota hospitals are having trouble discharging patients to continuing care, managing holiday debt, the single largest monetary donation to any Minnesota university was announced this week. But first, it was a busy week at the Minnesota legislature with lawmakers wrangling over a lot of high-profile issues. And Eminence Bill Werner joins us for a recap. Tasha, busy is probably an understatement with activity at the state capitol again going into overdrive after a quick break for the MLK holiday. Governor Tim Walls kicked things off Tuesday, rolling out a major component of his state budget proposal, $12 billion, over 40% of the long-term budget surplus to, as he put it, make Minnesota the best state in the country for kids. This budget will tackle and eliminate child poverty put money into families' pockets, and fund our schools. The governor proposing families making under $200,000 receive child care credits from as much as $4,000 a year up to $10,500, depending on the number of children. The governor proposing expanding pre-kindergarten plus universal free lunch and breakfast at schools in the federal program. And he says a proposed tax credit for lower-income families will reduce childhood poverty 25% in Minnesota. While also wants a 4% increase in general state funding for education next year, 2% increase the year after, although he said that actual dollar amount is a moving target. When we start seeing those opportunity gaps close and the achievement levels be across the board where Minnesota ranks at and will be at the top, at that point in time, that's when we're fully funding and we're getting that. Bill Walsh with conservative think tank Center of the American Experiment says half the students in Minnesota are not reading at grade level and the governor's answer is more money. It's a tired solution from a governor who just he's paying back his union friends for the help they gave him in the election because more money is good for teachers. It's good for salaries but it's not going to improve achievement. Education Minnesota Teachers Union President Denise Speck responds, naysayers have set up the system to fail. Our schools have been underfunded for decades. And when you starve school districts, you can't expect the outcomes that are being expected right now. The second of Attorney General Keith Ellison's statewide listening sessions on the proposed Fairview-Sanford merger was this week in Bemidji. Red Lake Nation Chairman Daryl Seeke said members have been subject to racial bias at Sanford's facility in Bemidji. And he played a video of a nurse talking about Red Lake and Leech Lake natives. They don't give a f- about anybody. They are a bunch of f- Indians. A bunch of f- losers. This should not happen to Native Americans. Now, you're a different color. We're born in the same way. Said Chairman Seeky, but Bemidji native and surgeon Dr. Jason Karen says that ghastly video is a one-off. I work with a lot of these nurses and a lot of people in here, and I love my, my Native American patients and friends. I have close, dear friends here who are Native American, and Sanford is not a place that's racist. Also at that hearing, Jean Foreman, retired nurse at Abbott Northwestern in Minneapolis, read a statement from a Sanford nurse who she said is afraid of retaliation from a health system with a total monopoly. Monopolize the area and its employees already by offering their own insurance that only allows us to seek health care within the same company we work for, funneling money to themselves. But Julie Lytola said when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. She got to stay here and be taken care of. 
And when her heart gave out, instead of staying in Florida, she flew to Bemidji. So thank you, Sanford. Attorney General Ellison has another hearing next week in Worthington, the following week in Grand Rapids. Wondering how this became the Minnesota DFL Party's number one priority. Abortion rights continued to be front and center at the state capitol as Democrats continued their push for putting measures into state law as insurance against a repeat performance in Minnesota of what happened in other states when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Despite strong Republican opposition, pro-choice Democrats moved a bill forward this week that would take off the books a wide variety of anti-abortion laws that Minnesota courts have struck down. Among them, required medical care to preserve the life and health of any potentially viable fetus born alive after an attempted abortion. Republican Senator Jim Abler from Anoka. This is not even about the right to an abortion. This is about respecting this little person that came out. But Edina Democratic Senator Alice Mann, a doctor, said she attended to a baby born at 25 weeks and did all she could to keep the infant alive. For six hours, and I knew that baby wasn't viable. And so what I did was I prolonged that mother's suffering and I prolonged that baby's suffering. A bill that would put abortion rights into Minnesota law this week cleared its final Senate committee judiciary with an intellectual yet passionate debate about where a fetus's legal rights begin if it is born alive despite an abortion. Maple Grove Republican Warren Limmer asking, If the abortion was not successful, who makes the decisions on behalf of the child? Is it the original intent of the mother? Can she abort that child after it is born? Bill sponsor Duluth Democrat Jennifer McEwen responded it happens less than 1% of the time, often under heart-wrenching circumstances when people have to make extremely difficult decisions. Sometimes have picked out names, have bought cribs and toys and clothes, and are devastated to learn that this is the course of action that they now find themselves having to take. The idea that Minnesotans are somehow willy-nilly just having abortions and that we have to step in to stop them is frankly insulting. And that bill went to the House floor where the Democratic majority passed it Thursday night. Republicans trying unsuccessfully to ban third trimester abortions, except in cases of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother. North Branch Republican Ann New Brindley told colleagues in the third trimester, an unborn baby can feel pain. She says there are several options for an abortion, one involving dismemberment. After that's done, that baby has to be reassembled to ensure that they got every piece out. Our new Brindley says in a chemical abortion. The baby is literally burned alive. People answer to God. Members of the audience, you will be removed if you disrupt the proceedings of the Minnesota House of Representatives. People simply do not do these things for frivolous reasons. And when they have to make these very, very intimate, difficult decisions, they deserve to do it without artificial barriers. We can get rid of a baby that's inconvenient. We can get rid of a boy that we wanted a girl. We can get rid of a girl because we wanted a boy. We didn't want to have a baby on that month, so we'll have an abortion. In Minnesota, we must establish that maternity is not a destiny. It's a choice. Nearly 70% of Minnesotans responded in a poll just a few months ago that they support legal abortion. 
and it included big majorities in every part of the state. I ask the DFL majority to listen to the voters of Minnesota, and if you do not, you are going to wake up a giant here in Minnesota. This is not the decision of anyone in this body to make decisions about my health care. It's mine, and it's decisions I make when I talk to my doctor. And the only politician in this room who should make decisions about my health is me. And Tasha, if folks think we've seen a fierce battle now, wait until that bill gets to the Minnesota Senate, where Democrats have only a one-vote majority. That's MNN's Bill Werner. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Last night we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Thousands of patients are spending extra days in hospital beds across the state because nursing homes, residential care facilities, and mental health treatment programs do not have the capacity for them. Eminence Brent Palm talks with the head of the Minnesota Hospital Association about the problem they're having discharging patients to appropriate care settings. New data show that hospitals in the state are having trouble properly discharging patients to appropriate care settings, and the staffing crisis is making matters even worse. To discuss these issues is Minnesota Hospital Association President and CEO, Dr. Rahul Karani. Dr. Karani, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Brent. You guys put out a news release, and the headline says... Nearly 2,000 patients eligible for transfer to continued care setting are stuck in hospital beds. For the layperson, what does that mean? What this means is that there is a gridlock in our hospitals across the state, which is making it difficult for patients to access care inside the hospital. This is why we hear about long wait times um, if a patient goes to the emergency room. This is why we hear about patients and families getting worried about not finding a place for their family member to go to in the community and feeling like they're stuck in the hospital. It's real. And as you said, we looked at one in December, just one week, and what we found was alarming. Almost 2,000 patients were stuck in hospitals across the state, um, preventing other patients from coming in and accessing care and making it difficult for these patients to recuperate in the community. We need help. And when we talk about continued care setting, we're talking about someone maybe going to a nursing home or a group home or a rehab facility or a residential mental health treatment facility, correct? Absolutely. So imagine uh, your family member you know, your mom or your loved one, or sometimes, you know, 
many times uh, your child or a kid that are in the hospital they're ready they don't need hospital level of services but they cannot be discharged into any of those settings that you mentioned it's a problem and like i said it's an absolute gridlock you know these are the patients that are stuck in the hospital but i'm guessing there's a ripple effect for other patients and the ripple effect that you talk about involves all of us all communities across um, our state you know greater minnesota small um, hospitals, uh, mid-sized hospitals in every part of the state, if the patient in the hospital cannot be discharged in a large hospital, um, they cannot admit the patient from the emergency department. That has a direct impact on patients waiting in a smaller hospital in greater Minnesota who cannot access that specialized surgery, that uh, specialized heart attack care, that specialized care for stroke or trauma. The other piece that is so important to know is our frontline care teams. You know, our care teams have done an amazing job over the last three years. They are stressed in having completely full hospitals, full emergency departments, and uh, patients and families that are struggling because they cannot go back into the community. That is so hard for our nurses, our physicians, and our therapists. Well, and, and I mean, you can't, you can't just send these folks home, right? I mean, when you say continuing care, they need to, to go somewhere else, correct? Exactly. And our, what is our mission as a hospital? Our mission is we are going to provide care. That's what we do. I'm a physician myself. We will bend over backwards and provide care. Hence, these 2,000 patients that don't need to be in the hospital, we are providing care. The problem is, it's causing those patients in the emergency department and others not to be able to be admitted, but also it's having an impact on our very difficult financials. You know, as you know, and I hope our public knows and the lawmakers know, um, we reported that last year, Minnesota hospitals had a negative uh, bottom line and a negative operating margin. So we are already financially struggling. and. All of these patients, these 2,000 patients for this one week that are stuck, we added up the numbers. That is almost $37 million of unreimbursed cost. So again, you know, we need help from our state lawmakers to make sure our patients get the right time at the right place um, and be able to be discharged in the community. We need help um, and real financial help for our nursing homes. And we need real financial help for our workforce and for the hospitals. Have you folks at the Minnesota Hospital Association been talking to legislators, leaders at the Capitol? Are they receptive? I mean, they obviously know this is a big issue for you folks. Well, absolutely. We're having these conversations, especially given that 71 new elected officials are at the Capitol. You know, one of the things that I hear from care team members and leaders from across the state is we're not sure that, you know, all the lawmakers understand how desperate and urgent this issue is, which is why we're having this call for action and raising this urgent issue. One week in December, 2,000 patients stuck, $35 million of losses. Our care teams are stressed out. We need urgent and immediate help. And it might be a good time because, as we all know, the state budget has a projected $17.6 billion surplus. 
Well, aren't we lucky to have that? I mean, we've we've all contributed to that. We are doing a great job in trying to make Minnesota be the very best in the country. Healthcare has to be a part of that. And I do hope that with this data about how many patients are struggling and stuck and wanting to go out into the community and our workforce that needs help right now, I'm hoping that the legislature will take urgent action now. Well, thanks, Dr. Karani, for telling us about the issues Minnesota hospitals are dealing with right now. And uh, we hope that uh, you folks can find some solutions and maybe some legislative aid here in the near future. Brent, thank you so much uh, for your attention. um, And uh, we will talk again. Thanks, Brent. More Minnesota Matters right after this. January can be a stressful time of year for people who are overwhelmed by holiday credit card debt and bills. I recently visited with Kim Miller with LSS Financial Counseling on ways to manage what now may seem like the holiday blues. Well, wanted to visit with you. Um, I know you folks uh, have put out kind of a, a, a message for folks after the holidays who are probably feeling a little overwhelmed now when they're getting their bank statements, uh, their credit card statements. What advice are you giving to those folks? I like to tell people just to take one small step at a time. And so part of it might just be gathering up all the statements or taking a look at the income that's coming in and the living expenses going out. Because sometimes over the holidays, we get excited and we sign up for things or we set up monthly payments uh, for, for purchases that we make over time. And so and we might lose track of it. And so a good first step is just to gather all the information and all of the holiday spending and write it down uh, and to take the steps to put it all in one place. And then the big question is, when we get it all in one place, um, is there anything uh, someone should do that good first step after getting all those documents in place? Where do you go from there? Do you kind of make a, a budget or how does that work? Yeah, budgets can look differently for different people, but ultimately it's a matter of assessing what kind of income is coming in and what is all going out. And at the end of the month, do you feel like you have money left over? And if things are tight or things are short and you're not able to uh, you know, pay all of the bills, then it's a matter of who can I call? Uh, to see what other options there might be. So it might be uh, calling the creditor directly to see if there's alternative payment plans or internal hardships. It might be calling our agency at LSS Financial Counseling to see, to, to work with a professional certified financial counselor to to assess and, and look at their options. Um, but I think it's just a it's just kind of a way to assess that. And then another thing uh, that I I wanted to ask, is there anything that we shouldn't be doing when it comes to this time of year and and our bills and budgets? I would encourage everyone to just take a beat (laughs) just to kind of um, to slow things down. I think when we feel stressed about our finances, uh, we tend to try to make immediate decisions to try to make that um, uncomfortableness go away as quickly as possible. But then as a result, it may end up end up in choosing um, options that may not be beneficial for us in the long term. For example, uh, looking at a high interest rate loan, or um, you know, choosing you know to pay one bill in full and then leaving another bill unpaid that can lead to you know consequences that type of thing. So I would encourage everyone just to slow down and 
and see uh, what the options are. And if they're able to just kind of take it, you know, one, one thing at a time. Thanks again to my guest, Kim Miller with LSS Financial Counseling. It's time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Did you know that more lives are lost to lung cancer each year than breast, colorectal, and prostate cancers combined? Lung cancer will claim more than 135,000 lives this year. But new treatments have improved survival for many with the disease and offer new hope for many more. So does lung cancer screening with low-dose chest CT. The American Cancer Society and most major professional organizations recommend that adults ages 55 and older with a long history of smoking, even if they have quit, should talk with their doctor to learn more about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening saves lives by detecting lung cancer early when it's more successfully treated. So, ask your doctor if lung cancer screening is right for you. And if you smoke, ask your doctor to help you quit. Visit the National Lung Cancer Roundtable website at nlcrt.org. That's nlcrt.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. One of the single largest monetary donations to any Minnesota university was announced this week after Lee and Penny Anderson pledged $75 million towards a new sports arena to be built on the St. Thomas University campus in St. Paul. The Tommies will play basketball and hockey in the new facility, which will open in 2025. St. Thomas Athletic Director Phil Esten spoke with Eminence sports correspondent Corbu Status about the new importance of the project. Phil, congratulations on a, a great day for Tommy Athletics and for the University of St. Thomas overall. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the $75 million gift and how it came together. Sure. Well, you know, first of all, I've, I've got to extend gratitude to Lee and Penny Anderson really for their generosity and support of our vision. You know, these, these types of things, we can dream it, but it doesn't come to life unless you have somebody who can help uh, make it come to life. And so we're really, really fortunate to have somebody like Lee and Penny, um, you know, in our team. And so um, as much as anything, you know, today is a day of gratitude as, as we think about, you know, our, our future. And, you know, w- with um, with Lee and Penny, this is, this is something that really has been building for the better part of several decades. Um, whether you think about the university's trajectory over the last three or four decades, you know, from a small private Catholic college to where we are today, more comprehensive um, largest private school in the state of Minnesota, um, and really building our trajectory, a, a reputation from a national perspective outside of regional boundaries. Um, but then also the relationship that the Andersons have built with the university over the last couple of decades. Um, you know, they really had um, grown fond of our mission and Father Deese, Dennis Deese, when he was president. Mm-hmm of the University of St. Thomas, and that relationship blossomed into Lee serving on our board. Now his daughter is serving on our board, uh, Catherine, and, and you know, they've really leaned into the mission. You know, when you think about, um, the you know, the formation of people of high integrity who can go out and impact the world, um, you know, Lee is, is um, very fond of his experiences at West Point, and he holds St. Thomas in a similar regard, and that's shown in their commitment and philanthropy over the last several several decades. That's always been part of the mission too, right? Is that athletics can be that uh, front porch, the front doorstep of the university and helping it become that global name, that global reach. Well, that's right. You know, and, and this transition for us is, is as much um, about that as anything else. You know, St. Thomas has got, I think, a great reputation 
locally and regionally, um, and our 115,000 alumni do go out and do great things. And how can we take that impact that our alumni have here in the state of Minnesota and, and maybe regionally and, and extend that? And so how um, the university has really thought about that is through intercollegiate athletics. It's one of the levers that we can use as an institution to help tell our story on a broader, you know, through a broader perspective and a broader lens. And, you know, I think, you know, Corbu, we've already started to see that over the last couple of years as, as we've started to compete at the Division One level. We've had some success and some of that success um, has translated to more national coverage of the university. Yeah, how does this arena, it's going to be hockey and basketball, right? That's Combination. Right. How does that help in that mission specifically? Well, you know, first of all, uh, it helps to draw more people to campus. You know, one of the things that I, I, I'm an alum and I love the beauty of our campus and the residential experience that our students have, students at large have on our campus. And so now that we've got an arena um, commensurate with expectations at the Division One level. It lets us recruit differently, but also allows us to invite alumni and others back uh, to campus. It could be fans of other teams. It could be um, you know, alumni that haven't been able to come back before and, and to see the beauty um, of our campus and really to see some of the great things that are happening on our campus in St. Paul. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that it does. But then also I think it sends a signal um, of demonstrated support of, of a continuing support excellence. You know, it's one of those, one of those things that St. Thomas has long supported is excellence in the classroom, excellence in the residential experience, excellence in athletics, et cetera. Uh, and, and so this is just a continued demonstration of that commitment to excellence. Give us some details about the arena. Well, I tell you what, it's remarkable. If, if, if you haven't seen the renderings yet, you should really go to tommysports.com and, and check out some of the renderings because it's, it, it will fit the campus landscape beautifully with the Casota stone and all the different architectural, Gothic architecture, et cetera. It looks like it belongs on our campus yeah. in, in St. Paul. Um, it is a multi-purpose arena, as, as you mentioned, 4,000-seat hockey, which translates to just over 5,000-seat basketball um, with all of the, the fan amenities that you might expect, and that's important for us. Um, and then on the student-athlete side, we've got a second sheet of ice for for our hockey teams to practice when it's configured, the main arena is configured for basketball and vice versa. We've got a basketball practice facility for our basketball teams when the main arena is configured in something other than basketball. Um, and it includes offices and locker rooms and a weight room and training room and all of the other things that we need to support student athletes at the division one level. And so it's really, um, it's a comprehensive facility and we're, we're going to be proud to call it home. Will it be just uh, men's and women's hockey and men's and women's basketball housed over there in terms of offices and workout facilities? You know, you know we'll, we'll also have the two soccer programs um, in that building as they compete on South Campus. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think something that's really important to us is the ability for us to use the arena for other campus activities. And you think about commencement and convocation and career fairs and, you know, all the other things that are really important part of the student life on campus. You know, how can we use that facility as an asset um, beyond athletics? And then also from a community perspective, you know, having conversations with, um, you know, local youth programs and high school programs and, you know, what else can we do to, to serve and provide this as an asset and a benefit to the broader community. So you make the announcement today, the big gift, and now what's the timeline going forward? Well, I'm going to take a breath uh, here for a <laughs> yeah. minute. We've been sprinting pretty hard. Um, <clears throat> we've got about a year in design right now. We, we retain the services of specialists in this space. Ryan Companies has, has long, built, long been experts in this space as well as Crawford Architects. Um, so we'll go to work on design that that takes the better part of a year. Um, and then provided that we've raised the funds necessary, um, you know, we've got a $131 million fundraising goal. This gets us $75 million of the way there. Uh, we'll put a shovel in the ground sometime in 24 with an expectation to open this for the fall of 2025. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Well, congrats on a, on a big announcement this week and uh, a big day for St. Thomas Athletics yeah, as well. well. Thanks so much, Roll Toms. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station, same time, same place. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radal.